0: Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Yeah. Amen. There's an old gospel song that I like to sing sometimes. It sounds like this How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and the joy. That he gives, oh, but greater still the calm assurance that we can face uncertain days because he lives. When we face uncertain days, what is your response? When we face uncertain times, often we're surprised because for some reason we feel like we can't be touched by trials or difficult days. And so our response isn't prepared. When your faith is challenged, when questions are asked of you, do you hold the line on your convictions? Or do you waver? When we face uncertain days, what's our response? On September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Two days later, after their ultimatum that Hitler withdraw his troops was ignored, Great Britain declared war on Germany. They recognized that the Nazi regime posed a great threat to Europe and the entire world, the British way of life, the security of its empire, and everything that the free world valued. On May 26, 1940, Great Britain faced a terrible loss at Dunkirk, which required them to withdraw their troops, ultimately resulting in France signing an armistice with Nazi Germany. Several years later, when the Allies attempted once again to retake France, it cost 73,000 lives at the Battle of Normandy. After Dunkirk, the British were very discouraged. They needed reassurance. They needed confidence. They needed hope. Their newly appointed Prime Minister Winston Churchill understood that the looming Nazi forces sought to ultimately... Invade Great Britain, and if the British people were going to hold the line and make sacrifices to preserve their way of life, then they could possibly succeed. But to do anything less than being willing to sacrifice at that line could possibly lead to their nation falling into the hands of Adolf Hitler. Churchill knew that as a leader, he needed to inspire his people. The result was a speech he gave in the House of Commons on June 18th, 1940. And it's the last part of this 36-minute long speech that cemented Churchill into the fabric of history as one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. The last bit of that speech reads, The battle of France is over. I expect that the battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all of Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say this was their finest hour. Churchill was ready to rally his people, and he was able to do so. And as a nation, they held the line in what truly was their darkest hour, which became their finest hour. Then in December 1941, the United States declared war, and we joined the Allies. You didn't know you were getting a history lesson this morning, did you? We were called to make sacrifices both on the home front and abroad. In World War II, I bet you didn't know that the Medal of Honor was awarded 473 times to U.S. military personnel who went above and beyond the call of duty, often sacrificing their own lives to defend their principles and their convictions against the threat of world domination. One of the recipients of this, the highest honor that the United States can bestow upon one of its service members, was a young man in the Army, a private first class named Joe Eugene Mann. The citation that was read when he was awarded the Medal of Honor states, he distinguished himself by conspicuous gallantry above and beyond the call of duty. On the 8th of September 1944, in the vicinity of Best, Holland, his platoon, attempting to seize the bridge across the Wilhelmina Canal, was surrounded and isolated by an enemy force greatly superior in personnel and firepower. Acting as lead scout, PFC man, boldly crept to within rocket launcher range of an enemy artillery position and, in the face of heavy enemy fire, destroyed an 88mm gun and an ammunition dump. Completely disregarding the great danger involved, he remained in his exposed position and with his M1 rifle killed the enemy one by one until he was wounded four times. Taken to a covered position, he insisted on returning to a forward position to stand guard during the night. On the following morning, the enemy launched a concerted attack and advanced to within a few yards of the position, throwing hand grenades as they approached. One of these landed within a few feet of PFC man. Unable to raise his arms, which were bandaged to his body, he yelled grenade and threw his body over the grenade. And as it exploded, he died. His outstanding gallantry above and beyond the call of duty and his magnificent conduct were an everlasting inspiration to his comrades for whom he gave his life. Why does history remember Joe Mann? Why was he memorialized by the Medal of Honor? His citation would suggest that it was because he held the line even when it cost him everything. He grasped his convictions tightly, holding on to them, his duty, regarding it higher than his own life. There are hundreds of stories like this from that period of history. These are just a couple. But why is this? Well, the freedom of the entire world was being threatened, and it was met with the resilience of individuals who were willing to die for what they believed in. Their mentality and the resulting actions reflected this fact. You may have heard of Lieutenant General Chesty Puller. I threw this one in for Pastor Zach. Chesty Puller is the most decorated and arguably most famous marine in history. He's well known for many reasons. But one of the most well known is for a quote that I'm sure you've heard. He said in combat, they're in front of us behind us, and we are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away now. Once again, why are these the stories that history chooses to remember? I want to suggest to you that history remembers these individuals because of their commitment to their convictions, even in the face of death. They believed in what they were fighting for. I really only have one point to make this morning, so you'll hear these questions over and over again. But my goal is to challenge you to hold the line on your convictions today. In Acts 3 and 4, while not a militaristic example, we find another story of devotion. Peter and John had just performed a a healing miracle And were at the temple teaching about Jesus. The temple guard, instructed by the priests, seized Peter and John and held them in jail for the night. Probably not the response they were expecting after healing somebody. (laughs) The next day they were called in for questioning. And the text tells us a little bit more about that in Acts chapter 4. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Peter and John had seen what the religious leaders could do in backing up their threats. Peter and John saw Jesus being crucified. Ultimately, as a result of the religious leaders carrying out their threats they knew that their refusal to honor the commands of the sanhedrin would most likely result in their deaths nevertheless they were determined to hold the line they had no intention of giving it up this is apparent when we read acts 4:29 it says now lord consider their threats that's probably where i would have stopped Now, Lord, consider their threats, but it goes on, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. See, all of these stories have a common thread that is woven throughout, and that's this notion that some things are worth fighting for. These individuals We're willing to face uncertain days without giving up their principles, or worse, the certainty of death. You see, it's easy to hold whatever belief, whatever conviction you want when it's not being challenged, but the degree to which you truly value those convictions is made evident when those convictions are tested. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, you are who you are when no one's watching? You ever heard somebody say that? There's a degree of truth to that for sure, but I would suggest that truly you are who you are when everyone is watching and when they're challenging your convictions. Because that's when you have to decide. It's only when our convictions are being challenged that they actually become convictions. Have you ever thought about that? Before our convictions are challenged, they're ideas. Most of the time, we come up with our ideas in peace, right? These are ideas. Okay, these are my ideas. This is what I believe. But conviction as defined by the dictionary is a firmly held belief. A belief is firmly held when someone tries to take it away from you. If you're holding on to something that you value and someone comes up and tries to take it from you, your grip is going to get tighter, right? You're going to hold on to it a little tighter than beforehand. And I would suggest that that's when it becomes a conviction. We should expect our convictions to cost us something, especially if they're biblical convictions. Why is this? We don't have to look very far to recognize that biblical morality is no longer very popular. Upholding the standard of the Bible will not bring you notoriety in an increasingly secular world determined to promote the perverse ideology of subjective morality. You are unlikely to be martyr for your faith where we live. Can somebody say amen? Amen. That should be all of us. Let's somebody say amen. Amen. Yes, you're unlikely. But You are highly likely to be challenged for your convictions, and that likelihood is ever increasing. Each of us will be called to stand up for what we believe in. So again, my one point today, my question for you is, will you hold the line? Last week, Pastor Manny finished up a series on discipleship, and he said that Being a Christian isn't just about making converts, it's about making disciples. In that series, we learned that our act of obedience to God is living a life of discipleship in light of what Christ did for us. See, this idea of discipleship is very intimately connected to what we're talking about today. In fact, we probably could have just made that a four-part series because they're so closely joined together. Holding the line... Is about evaluating our own discipleship. Are we a disciple of Christ? Further, is it evident in how you live your life? The message of Jesus challenges us to live an upright life in an increasingly complex world. God didn't give us the gospel for good times, He gave us the gospel for all times. Y'all are just as quiet as first servers. I should have put some jokes in here. (laughs) This morning, we're going to do some self-evaluation. Is that okay? Can we do that? All right. One thing to note about self-evaluation is that when done right, it can be uncomfortable, but the most successful individuals that I know are those who frequently evaluate themselves. Because what happens oftentimes in life is we can do the same stuff over and over again. We go to work, we come home, we eat food, we hang out with the same friends, we go to the same movie theater, we do yada, 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 the same thing over and over again. And when that happens, well, there's nothing wrong with that. We can get in a rut. We can get in a rut. And if without self-evaluation, seldom will we take a step back and think, okay, maybe I could be doing something a little bit different. Maybe I should be doing something a little bit different. And as a body of believers, as a church, we're called to self-evaluate so that we can look a little bit more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. Let me ask you a question. Yesterday, did every decision you make look exactly like Jesus? Probably not, right? So guess what? We all have room for (laughs) self-evaluation, So now that we're on the same page, I want to ask you a list of questions, and if, it, if they're uncomfortable, that's okay, because self-evaluation is going to be a little bit uncomfortable, because if done correctly, it challenges us to do something different, right? Question one, when was the last time you stepped back and took a look at what? Are you living according to the gospel? The next one, is your life continuous evidence of God's saving grace, his mercy, and his sanctifying power? What have you done this week to pursue sanctification? Are you growing in your walk with Christ or have you become stale? Have you reached a stall in your pursuit of righteousness and holiness in your own life? Scripture says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Sometimes I think we forget that we're on a narrow road. Right? We have oftentimes adopted this consumer-friendly idea of Jesus. What fast food restaurant was it that said, have it your way? Was that Burger King? It was Burger King. So we think of Jesus as like a have it your way Jesus sometimes. Because of this, when our convictions are challenged to the point of making us feel uncomfortable, we think, oh, this can't be right. And then we rethink our principles because we have this this notion that Jesus is only here to bring us comfort. And so sometimes we can even twist the scripture to our own liking and be like, oh, Jesus came to give me life to the fullest, how can I have life to the fullest if I'm uncomfortable at work every day because I stand up for the sanctity of life? How can I live life to the fullest if I'm being ridiculed for holding an unpopular belief? And before long, we've changed the gospel in our mind. We've watered it down, and we end up with this false messiah that we worship, this idea a version of Jesus who fights for our comfort and is a proponent of subjective morality. If it feels good, then it is good. But I want to remind you today in our process of self-evaluation that Jesus didn't die for our feelings. He died for our soul. Sometimes we get creative to justify giving up the line. We say, oh, I was born a specific way. That's why I do this. Or, oh, my culture makes me predetermined to make these particular decisions. Or maybe maybe I act a certain way because my father was an alcoholic. But certainly the Bible doesn't necessarily like apply to me in every context. Biblical sexual ethics, that's not something I need you to follow. That was written 2,000 years ago. And we put God in this box thinking that somehow the God of the universe is bound by time. But the gospel supersedes your heritage, supersedes your culture. It supersedes where you've been. It supersedes how you were born. It supersedes the bad breaks that you've experienced in your life because Jesus is greater. If your God is not greater than your situation, you need a new one. If you think everything about how you want to live will fit perfectly into the standard of God's righteousness without requiring any change, discomfort, or conviction on your part, then by default, you're implying you have no need for sanctification and no need for the blood of Jesus. Man, y'all, I should have preached a different message. <laughs> but the problem is, we can't live a life apart. From pursuing sanctification if we're truly going to be followers of Jesus. The gospel is bigger than we are. And if we think that God is somehow going to change his standards to suit our preferences, we've kind of got it backwards, right? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I read that, I'm a little bit relieved because I know I'm not the only one. There's not some perfect person out there who's God's favorite. None of that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the level playing field. Let me tell you what. Maybe you were born really, really broke into a family of drug addicts and alcoholics. You look over somebody else and maybe they were born into a family of millionaires. Definitely lived a different life than you did growing up. But the level playing field is this. Outside of the blood of Jesus, we are all unrighteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The things that matter is just that. Maybe you had a rough time growing up. Maybe you didn't. The level playing field is each of us is guilty of imperfection. But thank God for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our sins. So what then? Is grace just our get-out-of-jail-free card? Right? Okay, so I messed up. I'll just ask a quick, quick prayer. It's good. And I keep living my life ignoring the things that need to change to make me more like Jesus. Instead of growing more like Jesus, I'm just using him. Paul is clear that that's a bad idea. We just finished a study on Romans. And in Romans, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We're those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, as believers, we're not just called to accept the gift of grace. We're called to live in sanctification. By a show of hands, how many of y'all have ever heard me say the word sanctification while preaching up here? Yep, just about all of you. And you'll continue to hear it from me every time I'm up here, most likely. Why? Because sanctification is actually how we are Christians. So we ask Jesus into our hearts in elementary terms. And sometimes we think that's, that's the end of it, right? We just, hey, thank you, Jesus. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Amen. But that's just the initial act of surrender. It can't stop there. That's why you come to church. Right? That's why we listen to sermons. That's why we read the Bible. It's because it's not just that initial act of grace that gets you by for the rest of your life. Something's got to change. I've been thinking about this a lot, lately. So I am getting married in May. Very Thank you. Very excited about that. Um, but... There are things about my life right now that are great, but I would be foolish to think that I can stand before God and everybody and say my vows and then go home and my life be exactly the same, right? Because there's a new part of me. Y'all, I, listen, I love to deer hunt. I absolutely love it. I, I deer hunted almost every day this week. But if I think when I get married that I'm going to be able to be gone from 3 p.m. to like 9 p.m. longer if I actually shoot a deer every day, that's not going to work, right? I know going into this that it's going to require change on my part. So as Christians, if we're accepting a new life in Christ, we would be naive to think that it's not going to require change on our part. It's no coincidence that the Bible uses the analogy of us being the bride of Christ. We literally enter into this holy covenant with God. We can't expect not to have to change. I feel like deep down we kind of know this, right? We know this. That's why we're here. Whether you've been a Christian for 30 minutes or 30 years, you are at least familiar with the concept that being a Christian is something new. It's the beginning of something new. It's a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. We know this, right? And yet we know it, but sometimes our actions don't line up with that fact that we're a new creation. So why is that? It's a rhetorical question because if I asked every person here We could each probably give a nuanced answer. Something that is unique to our situation. And so I don't want to generalize it. But since I'm talking to all of you and not one of you. I want to provide three possibilities for why we might be doing this. Even though we know that we're a new creation in Christ. We may not be living that life. Now here's the deal. These are sobering categories. So don't get scared and leave. Okay. A couple of things about these. If you're a believer And you're honest and humble, you'll be able to look at these and you'll be able to say, okay, either I was in one of these at one point or I'm there now. You are in good company. If you're uncomfortable, please know I'm uncomfortable and the people beside you probably are too. But remember, self-reflection involves looking, involves pushing, pressing, prodding, challenging, right? And so if something strikes a chord here, know that you are in good company. The first category is perhaps you know what God's standard of living is, but you've chosen to reject it and hope that his grace will cover your willful refusal to truly surrender your life. People in this category are believers. Oftentimes they go to church, they raise their kids in church, they come to church functions, they maybe serve on the worship team or they're a greeter. But they don't really take living a Christian life seriously outside of Sunday morning. From the outside looking in, they seem great. They seem like they've got it all together. But they fall into this manner of thinking that suggests that the Bible is just a good book. It's not the standard for morality. Nobody actually does that stuff. And they deceive themselves. And the result is a life lived short of all that God has for them. The second category. And in my experience. This is probably the most ca- most, uh, most common category for believers. Now again. That's just my experience. I don't have any statistics to, to follow that one up or anything. So you know. Take it for what it's worth. But the second category. Maybe you've accepted Jesus. You believe in him. But you haven't taken the time to truly learn about the life he wants you to live. Maybe you've accepted God's grace, you know about it, and you're familiar with it, and you're grateful for it. But you don't have time in your life to actually devote to spiritual maturity. You've heard the phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And maybe you've even given that advice to someone as a disguise for not being able to actually tell them what Jesus would do. Because you haven't taken the time to develop your spiritual maturity. You can't tell them what would Jesus do. Maybe because you haven't taken the time to read the Bible and study it for yourself. The third category. Maybe you've read the Bible and you know how God wants you to live. But you don't prioritize your relationship with him like you should. You're not growing in your faith. Maybe you come to church, but you don't pay attention, or the choices in your day-to-day life don't line themselves up with that of a growing Christian. You're a believer, but you're not pursuing sanctification. You've become stagnant in your growth. See, church, let's just take a minute, take a deep breath, and breathe it out. Let me put you at ease if we're honest with ourselves truly, we can all put ourselves in one of those categories at one time or another in our lives. There is no shame in that. The problem is not if you find yourself in one of those categories. That's the good thing. That's the purpose of self-evaluation is to realize, hey, I got some work to do. The issue is not realizing it The issue would be to realize it and not make any changes that lend themselves to growth and sanctification on your part. We have to hold the line. We have to be determined to hold the line. Again, why were people like Joe Mann and Winston Churchill and Chesty Puller able to be so courageous in the midst of so much terror and evil? History would suggest that it's because they believed in what they were fighting for. They upheld their principles. They understood that there was no option other than holding the line. In fact, that was just it. The one option, hold the line or die trying. If we truly believe the message of the gospel, if it's part of who we are, if it's the foundation for our ideologies and our outlook on the world, we won't be so quick to lay down our convictions. And yet oftentimes, the life that avoids self-evaluation lends itself to doing just that. Giving up the line, little by little. We're quick to accept God's forgiveness for our sins, but we're slow to ex- adopt His standard of living in our own lives and allow sanctification to mold us into the people He has called us to be. But once again, you're not alone. If we're humble enough to admit it, every single one of us has the capacity and the need for spiritual growth in our life. That's why we're here, because we want to grow. And regardless of whether or not you find yourself in one of those three categories specifically, I want to encourage you and remind you that God's call on your life persists. If you think that something you have done can keep you from being used by God, you don't know my God. But the difference between people in the Bible that we read about who sinned and were cast out and the people in the Bible who sinned and were called those uh, after God's own heart were their actions, their self-evaluation. Them saying, oh no, I messed up. What do we do now? The commonality for every person in the world is that at some time we're going to have an oh no, I messed up moment. That's going to happen to all of us. The differences between those who end up successful and those who fail comes at the choice that takes place after the mistake. Will you accept the call of God to sanctification and hold the line? Nobody can make you do this, right? I use this illustration in first service. When we were young, my mom had a list of duties we had to do. These were our chores, right? Right. And until she found out I was really allergic to dust, mine was dusting the baseboards, right? And so uh, she would give me the tool to do it, right? She would give me the little Swiffer dust thing and I knew how to do it. But if my attitude was defiant and I was like, no, I'm not dusting the baseboards, I had the tool in my hand, but there was nothing that anyone could do to make me physically dust the baseboards. When you come to church, We're here to give you the duster, but you have to decide if you're going to apply it. So for those of us who want to apply this teaching, there are three things that we can do to better hold the line. The first thing is understand what we believe. The second is to pray. And the third is to fellowship with believers. The first thing we're going to need to do if we are going to stand up for what we believe in is to know what we believe in, right? As a Christian, you are held to the standard of the Bible by God, whether or not you've read it. Oh Lord, goodness, right? Woo. Mm. We need to be reading the Bible because we are responsible for living according to it. And when I sign my name on something, I want to know what I'm signing. I'm the guy that read the Apple terms and conditions. No kidding. Now, this was years ago. This is like probably 2010 or whatever. But I was, it had the, we've updated the terms and conditions. You must check this box that you've read it. I was like, I haven't read this. I read the whole Apple terms and conditions, y'all. Because when I sign my name on something, I want to know what it says. I don't want to be surprised. But when we sign the most important decision that we're ever going to make. Why is it that so often we don't think that we need to then learn about the decision that we've made? As believers, we've got to be reading the Bible. You can't hold your line on the convictions that you don't know you have. And as Christians, you don't actually get to decide your convictions. Oh, let me tell you, y'all. There are plenty of things in the Bible that I wish weren't there. Right? It's like, okay, if I was writing the Bible, I probably would have changed this. I probably would have done this a little bit different. Oh, I, this command. Listen, I don't want to, we're going to strike this out. Right? But I didn't write the Bible. My job as a believer is not to decide my convictions. It's to follow the convictions of the Bible. And that's one thing that surprises me. I see a lot of people getting in arguments and they're like, well, as a believer, I think this. And I'm like, that's not in the Bible. I'm like, yeah, but I just, I feel it. Is, it. is it really not there? I'm like, no, it's not there. I read the book, <laughs> right? You would save yourself from so much embarrassment if you study the Bible and know what it says. Joshua 1.8 says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written it then you will be prosperous and successful how many people have the bible app i love the bible app y'all love it that verse of the day is great but that's not enough to sustain you if you're a verse of the day person that's awesome but if that's all you're doing that's 365 verses in a year can you really stand before god and be like hey i didn't let your teachings depart from my mouth I meditated on them day and night. I was careful to do everything written in it. We got to be able to make that commitment to God. And the only way that we can do that, the only way that we can say we were careful to do everything written in it is if we know what's in it. As a believer, at a minimum, we should read the Bible through in its entirety at least one time. But let's not stop there. Let's take it a step further. Let's pursue knowledge and wisdom. Let's be a people of the word. When we don't understand a passage, let's dig deeper on it. Let's study it. Let's ask questions. Let's read a commentary or watch a sermon on it. We need to live and breathe the teachings of scripture. Why? Because when we follow them, we don't follow them legalistically. We follow them because we want to learn more about Jesus. And when we're reading about the life of Jesus and realizing, okay, My life looks a little bit different in this area than the life of Jesus. I need to change a little bit. I want to look a little bit more like Jesus. I want to be sanctified. I want to be separate from sin and set apart to serve God. I got to read the Bible because the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is his revelation to his people of himself and his plan of salvation. When we're living a life of biblical principles, we can be certain that there will be difficult seasons. And because of that, we got to pray. That's the second thing. We need to be a people of prayer. We live in a me first, pleasure seeking society. If it feels good, it is good. Because of that, Our principles and the way we live our life is not always going to be popular. When we're living a self-sacrificial lifestyle in line with the teachings of Christ, the world will probably take notice and it probably won't always like what it sees. Because of this, we need to keep the lines of communication open between us and God. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, present your request to God. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, But in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and then all your problems will be solved. That's another thing. Remember how if I was writing the Bible, I would have changed it. It, The Judah version of this would be like, You won't have any worries. But in every situation, as long as you at least acknowledge God, all of your problems will be solved. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? But that's not what it says. So we need to be careful not to misread it or misunderstand it and then live our life and be like, God, why are you doing this? And he's up there like, no, it says pretty clearly in the word. A couple things that this passage teaches me. One, anxiety is a real thing. Right? It acknowledges, it wouldn't say, hey, don't be anxious if our default was not anxiety, right? And it also doesn't say, don't be anxious and then pause there. It, it basically is saying, when you're anxious, this is what you need to do. In every situation, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what, I would rather have peace. Than the outcome that I thought I needed any day of the week. Because I've ended up with the outcome that I thought I wanted and no peace. You're not God. And that should be a relief. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're not guaranteed the outcome we want. Thank God. We're not guaranteed the outcome We want there's a there's a country song and says sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers Because the way that we want our life to go Is seldom the way that it needs to go And what this verse is saying is when you truly surrender You'll receive peace because you realize that your peace is not based on what you have or what you think you need Your peace is based in Christ Holding the line is difficult and it is challenging I can tell because of the lack of amens I have gotten. It's challenging, right? Nobody wants to hear that, but we have to continuously bathe our lives in prayer if we are truly going to live and hold the line in a world of chaos. The third thing that we've got to do when we're going to hold the line in an increasingly complex world is to regularly fellowship believers. We need community. Don't try doing this by yourself. That's not just a good idea that pastors say to keep people coming to their church. It's in the Bible. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. He called out the backsliders. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. When things get harder, we need to be meeting together all the more. Sometimes we get into this idea that when things get harder... We need to cower in shame or pull away from the church or pull away from the people that we love. But it's actually the opposite. When trials and tribulations come, we need to continue meeting together. Have you heard the uh, phrase like a three-stranded cord isn't isn't easily broken? It's actually in the Bible and it's in Ecclesiastes. And it says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We need each other. I need you. As a Christian, I need you. It would be very difficult to live this life by myself. That's not how we're designed. As believers, we need other people on the line with us. And when the church is functioning at its fullest capacity, the peace of God will feed the church will be challenged and convicted to look more and more like Jesus every day as the church, we need community. Each of the individuals that we discussed today encountered circumstances that were defined by uncertainty. But in the uncertainty of their situations, they were certain of their convictions. They knew why they were fighting. They knew what was at stake. And as believers, we are in times of uncertainty. This isn't a doomsday message by any means. If you've ever been like lived a life and you're like, oh, I'm certain of everything that's going to happen tomorrow, please come tell me because I I would like to adopt your, you know, whatever you're doing that I'm not. (laughs) But part of being a believer, part of being a person is recognizing that uncertain situations sometimes define our lives. But as Christians, we can stand on Christ the solid rock and have our convictions certain even when our circumstances are not. In times of uncertainty, we need to trust in God and uphold our convictions because if those uncertain times cause you to give up your convictions, they weren't convictions in the first place. It was just an idea. Would you stand with us?